This is a Pivotal Conversations podcast. So people say, I, I, I trust Kevin. If Kevin says something, I will generally believe what he says. Now, have I always got it right? No. Have I always told the truth? No. Have I always got 100% of everything right and positive? No. Have I messed up? Yes. I'm human. I'm flawed. What integrity is, is knowing when you've gone off that area and bring yourself back onto it quickly and put it right. Welcome to the podcast, first of all. So I did a bit of a spiel before we jumped on. Um, you're someone I look up to. You've played a big role in my life. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, Kevin is my stepfather. And for me, he's the epitome of a leader. Um, you know, we're, we're three episodes in and we had a conversation with the next Navy SEAL. We also had a conversation with Toby, who's the owner of Creative Cubes. And the, the thing about a leader that I think resonates with me you know, the most is the energy that you get from them and, and the want to be better um, from just being in the same room as them. And um, not many people are going to know who you are, but you're someone who I want to, and I have for a, a very long time, and to, to, to get on the podcast because the wisdom and experience that comes from the life experiences that you've been through over the last 40 to 50 years is is what true leadership really is, you know, like being able to share those experiences with people. And that's the beauty of podcasting. You know, you haven't done one before, but, you know, this is going to be broadcasted and, and there's quite a few people that listen and, and they're going to get a lot out of it and this is going to change their day-to-day. Um, so before we dive into any of that and to start the conversation, I want you to give everyone a bit of an insight into who you are and your journey, you know, what you're currently doing, but also you know, where, where everything started for you as well? Um, well, the journey where I am now is that I run a small consultancy business, which is aimed at going into companies and organizations that are experiencing high levels of violence, assaults, injuries, and offering strategies and different various different um, opportunities, if you like, to, to make some slight amendments and reduce that risk. Um, prior to that, and certainly my start, was 35 years both in the British military and the British police, 30 years in the police, and I was heavily involved in probably the more higher-end risk elements of the job, um, tactical firearms, riot, all those sort of things. And you talked about leadership, and Today, I think the concept that I can bring to the table or I will bring to the table is the fact that you haven't always got to be the most senior person in the room to give out influence. And for me, um, leadership is about, an emerging leadership is about being able to influence positively without having maybe the status or the rank um, that goes with it. I've always kept very low under the radar, and I do that not for any other reason other than the fact that I work my work, I do my stuff, and I always, I'm always on recommendations. I'm never out there advertising, and I keep it that way purely because that's, at my core, is who I am. You know, I have no um, predominant ego to be on the stage and in front of 50,000 people. I, I just feel that I can do my work I'm judged on the outcome of that work, and I'm recommended somewhere else as a result of that outcome. So for me, all what I've experienced, and part of that experience was near the last six years of my service, I was seconded to a position where I was responsible with others, but primarily responsible for the development of the national model for dealing with riots, soccer violence, rave violence, sporting events. And I was part of the development team to write that program. And then I had to train the most senior commanders from all over the country in a room for five days when I wasn't of the same rank that they were. Does that make sense? So when you start off, the first thing you do is, when you're given a, a task that is currently failing, the course was failing, people were walking off after two days, three days. And I was called in and given this task. So what do you do? You know, my, my view on this is simple. It's like, you want to know where I come from, and that's where I come from. I had to sit back and take a long, hard look 
at how I was going to influence these people in five days to achieve what we needed to achieve. And if they didn't or didn't reach their accreditation, they couldn't command various different events on the country. So that was a responsibility to me. Mm. Um, and so I sat down and I thought long and hard. And I took consultation from a lot of people. I didn't think I could deal with it myself. I didn't feel I was the only one who had a say in where this course went. I sought counsel from people of all levels, in and out of the organization, who I felt could give me a little bit of a steer and to either quantify or not quantify the th my thinking. So I didn't just ask advice, I put something in together, I created a model, I put that out to these people and they come back and said, yes, mm, bits there, there, and I, I, I together worked and molded something together, which turned out to be one of the most successful courses they'd run in th at that time in, in, in the country. Mm -hmm. So, that's what I was doing. And when I left, they made me, I retired from the police and they gave me a role of being the professional development management of the organization, which meant I was responsible for the development of every police officer coming into the organization. And I had 60 managers, but they were all sergeants, so they all had rank, they all had egos. And my task was to mold them into one department, working from six different sites, which meant they had to move. And trust me, you know, managing characters, managing strong personalities, not just managing, but inspiring them to want to do what you knew is the right thing to do, and taking the hits that come with that is where you sit down at the end of the day and know, you know, that was a, that was a good day. Because at the end, everything was done, everything was in place. We got rid of the dead wood, we brought in new people who were inspiring the new generation of police coming through, we set standards, and at the end of it, you know, they felt that was a job well done. So I then left because once the job's done, you go. You know, I don't ever feel like you have to hang around too long to get found out, if you like, I used to say. Well, if I stay too long, they'll find me out that I'm a bit of a fraud. But actually, that's not, you know, that's not the case. It's just that you just need to do your job, get the impetus, and then look for your next one. That gives you the inspiration, gives you the motivation to go off and do other things. And as it turned out, I emigrated to Australia. I met you. <laughs> Wasn't I a little bit different, huh? You're a bit different to what you are now, mate. <laughs> different um, podcast, I think that is. <laughs> um, okay, so I want to, like, I mean, there's two parts to this that really stand out to me. Um, that, it, like, there's obviously joining the military at a young age and, and obviously being in the police force. What were some, and then, and then there's also the management side, like, you know, the, the more senior Kevin Ellis, who is managing, as you said, all these characters and, and you know, having to kind of work through that dynamic. But let, let's start at that, that, I guess, that initial place where what, what are some of the biggest lessons that you learned, you know, during your time in the army, in the police force, as this can be, doesn't just necessarily have to be leadership, but I think it plays, it will play its role, but just in general, one of the, what are the biggest lessons that you got out of your time in the military and the police force that have made you who you are today? Well, as you know, where I come from was a particular troubled estate. There were very few opportunities for people where I come from. And most of my friends I grew up with went the way they, they went. And it was a very early, early days. I was about 10 years of age when it was clear to me that without knowing without understanding and not having the emotional maturity to understand what I was doing. I had to work out that if I stay here, there's only one route that I'm going to be on. Mm. And so I made a, a subconscious decision. It wasn't even conscious because, you know, your, your brain hasn't really developed that stage. So I was, I knew in my gut that I should mix with these. And yet it was very hard not to mix with them because they were great guys. They were fun. They were characters. But I knew I shouldn't. And so the lessons I learned in that, even in that early age, is that you are 95% of the people you hang around with. I knew that was where I was going to go, and I wanted to go somewhere else. But where did a kid like me go? You know, I, we, my family, there was addictions. There was all sorts of issues that I looked at, not as role models, but as illness. You know, and I thought, well, if I'm going to do anything, if I want to travel, I've got to get away from this environment. And where did someone like you go? I didn't go to school, hardly. You know, I played rugby and my mindset was if there's rugby I'm going you know so it was sport 
and in particular one sports teacher, and I'll go through this all the way through, mate. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. My sports teacher, Dennis Ellis, same name as me, no connection, got hold of me and just said, mate, you know, this is not where you want to be. And I said, I get it, I know that. But I'm 10 years of age for Christ's sake, you know what I mean? And, and what do I do? And he was saying, you put your emphasis in sport. Sorry, I was 13 then. Emphasis in sport. Sport's where you've got to go. So I started to train. I started to do things. I couldn't, there's no gyms. I couldn't have a gym. So I'd run it up the hills and do all the things. Good thing about South Wales, of course, a lot of hills. And I would do all this sort of stuff. And I'd pick up bins and do different stuff in the background. And I started to develop and started to get fitter. And that improved the rugby, of course. And I started to get noticed. And people were talking about, you know, oh, maybe you could do this. Maybe you could do that. But ultimately, my circumstances usually came in at some stage and just took the legs away from it. So I made a, a very conscious decision by the age of 15 that I said, right, I've got to physically now distance myself from all of this. So I left my home and went to live with an auntie on the other side of the city. Now, the problem was I didn't want to leave school. I didn't want to change the school. I'd already made the decision that I wanted to join the army. And in them days... You couldn't just join the army, you know. They, they had to do home, they had to come assess you, had to go and do the tests and everything else. So I, I, I thought, well, I've got to join the army. So I've got to have some education to, to get past that exam. So I've got to study for that. That's what I've got to do. The next thing is I've got to be away from these guys. I've just got to get away. So they put me, moved me to the ante. Now I, that meant I couldn't go to the school. Says, so well, you still got to change schools. That's not happening. And then popped. Student is ready. The teacher appears. I'll pop Dennis Ellis, who just by coincidence lived in the estate where my auntie lived, on the other side of the city. So he drove in every day. Now what he said to me was, I'll bring you in and I'll take you home. If you're not ready at the end of school to come home with me, I'm leaving you. And I'll only do it once. I said, all right, okay. So of course, I'm getting a lot of pressure to go out and do the things I want to, you know, but he was there, took me. And then of course, when I'm stuck in my auntie, I'm stuck in an auntie's house, there is nothing to do. So she said, I'll read your books. I've got these, I've looked at these. So I started to read and I started to look at different things and started to pick up on, on various different sort of things that were going on. And, and at 16, I said, Ryan, ready. Left school, but not really a lot of qualifications. Went to the Army Careers Office on my own. No one taught me, no one sort of gave me advice. I didn't know family members coming with me saying, tap, 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 come on, son, you can do it. Went in there. In fact, I went to the Royal Marines office first, not the Army. I went to the Royal Marines office. I wanted to be a Marine. I thought, I'll be a Marine. Went into the Marine office. They sent me down. Big, big guy in a sash, all the sash. Did the test. Passed the test. Passed the test. And I was like, whoa. Then he said, look, mate. He says, we can't take you till you're 18. The Army will take you at 16 as a boy soldier. You know what I mean? Where it means you go into the Army, but you're in a special environment where they develop you. It's a junior leaders regiment. So you're developing for the potential of being a leader of the future. He says, now they'll take you at 16 if you can get in. And I says, oh. He says, I'll come and come And then again, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. That guy walked me from that office, didn't need to, all the way across the street to the Army Careers Office and introduced me to the sergeant in the Army Careers Office and had a bit of a spiel in private and said he's just passed the Marine exam, but he, we can't take him until he's 18. The guy said, okay, come in and do the Army exam. That was easier than the Marine exam, so I passed that. And bang, I had an interview, formal interview within two days, and I was accepted. In September 1976, I was accepted into the Junior Leader Regiment Royal Artillery, where I turned up on the gates with hair down here, no, no clothes, just, just a wild, untrained kid. And, I, and, and what they did was they got you from the moment you walk in. There was 267 of us turned up on that day. It was 200 and something turned up on that day. We're all put into different sections and troops, all put into rooms with guys we've never met in bunk beds and everything else. There's about 15 people to a room. By the time we passed out of the six weeks, everyone had a single bed. And everybody, and out of that 280, probably around about 96 to 100, actually passed out. It was brutal. 1970s British Army was brutal. And what they taught me was that they, they said, oh, we're going to break you down and we'll rebuild you up. That was, the, that was the theory. But what they taught me was, they taught me that forget what you were when you walked through this door. 
It's what's going out at the end of the six weeks that we are interested in. And if you're gobby, if, you're, if you've got an ego, if you are someone who thinks they're something they're not. Hey guys, sorry for the interruption. It's Kyle. I just wanted to jump on here and remind you guys that every single month, the podcast is going to be running a competition on behalf of Elite Vitality Business School, where we are offering you a spot into our newest course, the Diploma of Fitness Business. Now, all you have to do is take a photo of the episode that you're listening to, give myself a tag, give Reese Livingston a tag, and give Pivotal Conversations a tag, and tell us exactly what you're loving about the episode that you're listening to, or your biggest learning. And that'll go into our inbox, and then every single month we're going to be drawing a winner and giving away a spot into the next intake of the course. Back to the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Regardless of if you're driving a Ferrari before you come here, not many 16 years at a Ferrari, <laughs> but if you're doing all this, you, we, will, we, will, we will beat that out of you and we'll get you into a place where values, values are really important. And we will change your view of the world. And I didn't get it at the start. But a few, you know, a few things later down the track, you know, when didn't quite get things right, all your kit goes out the window and, you know, you have to inspection and then again, five o'clock you're up and all the kit goes out the window again. And I sat there and I thought, well, my God, man, this is brutal. And you get guys sitting there, 16 year old, never left home, sitting there thinking, crying at night. <laughs> you hear them in the background of the rooms and you can, <sighs> and they'd leave. Because he was a volunteer, you could leave. So they'd leave. Mum, come and get me. I can't take it anymore. No mobile phones them days. No internet them days. Nothing. You were in your room, in your bed space, which was your life. You had your hand nails and toenails and feet examined every nine o'clock, every night for hygiene purposes. Some kids had never been taught how to wash. Some kids had never been taught how to make a bed. And the biggest thing I learned, the very first thing they said, you'll make your bed every day. First thing you do when you get out of bed is make your bed. And we will break it up. And then you'll make it again. And I remember saying, why why'd you just do that? And you want me to make it up again? And then woof, out you go into a little room. You're beasted slightly, you know. And then you come again and you do it and you understand that. Just do as you're told at this moment in time. It's not about the finished product. This is all part of work in progress. And once I got that, once I understood that this wasn't malicious, it wasn't personal to me, it was about trying to produce a product that could go on and do things in the military, I set and I accepted it. I surrendered my ego to that point, to that process. And life became really good fun. I had never had three meals in a day in my life. And we were marched to breakfast, we marched to lunch, we marched to dinner, and we'd queue up for freaking food like you'd never seen. And they said to me, they said, oh, you play rugby? Right, you're going to play rugby. We're going to play rugby. And then they said, right, we're looking for boxers. Who's, bo who's a boxer? And I said, no, no, I've never boxed in my life. And I, a lot of fights, but I've never boxed. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'm not going to volunteer to box. And then he said, boxers go to the front of the dinner queue. Whoosh. That went my hand, you know. <laughs> that went my hand. I'll go, I'll box. You know, and then I was in the boxing, uh, this boxing thing. And away we went and come back in. And, and then I just found that everything resorted around your basic it's, it's the Maslow hierarchy of needs, yeah. really. It's your, your basic fundamentals. I had a bed to sleep on. I had clean, clean clothes. I had clean bedding. I had heat. I had food. You know, I had access to people who stimulated me because we're all in the same thing. We laughed like you never believed, regardless of what they did with us. We laughed like you never believed. So what did I get out of it? I got that camaraderie. I made friends. I'm still godson to some of those guys in that room when I was 16 years of age. I'm godson to their kids. We've never lost touch, you know? So I, I got that. And that was the juniors. And then, of course, they put you to the regiment and you start your career. But if you want to know what I really learned, surrender the ego. Keep slightly below the radar, but don't be frightened to speak up about what you're, you know, who you are. And you can't do everything on your own. That's the biggest thing. You can't do everything on your own. You need to take counsel from somebody even if it's just to check what you are thinking. Pick your counsel wisely is another thing. So, one, like, and, and there's kind of like a, a theme that, uh, you know, I picked up on. And, I mean, this is, again, why I wanted to have you on. And, and you know, Leadership Month has 
is going to feature two people that have been in the military or, you know, one was a Navy SEAL and it's the, the perspective. And I think like, I mean, like, cause I, I can honestly sit here and say like, I've, I've had a fucking amazing life, you know, like I've had so much given to me uh, and I look to people like yourself and I look to people that I can look up to um, for perspective continuously because it keeps me grounded and like, you know, it was funny, We um, JP Donnell, the, the Navy SEAL, kind of said something. He goes, you know, if you're running a business and most people that are listening to this are probably running a business or they're aspiring to achieve something, you're in a really, really lucky position. Like, you know, and, and that's kind of like out of everything you just said there, it's like you, you learn a lot of these lessons through the army. But as you said, the, you know, boxing in front of the queue and it's like that perspective of like, you know, if and, and coming back to that point, if you are running a business, you are in a, a very lucky position and you need to be grateful for that. And that humility, that that gratitude that you can show for those positions that you're in in life, like there are people that wish your problems were their problems. And yeah. I feel like, I, and I don't know about you, but like that, that can, especially in the modern age, can be lost very easily. Well, you know, there's... There's a saying, isn't there? The, the, there's a big thing for me is that, you know, we're all, we're all generational and we are put in a box. So I'm a baby bloomer, so therefore I must be a certain type of person. You know, we're pre-internet and we have our views and we've basically messed up the world, you know, so that the Gen X, Gen Zs can come in and sort it out, you know, because they've got all the technology and everything else. But there's also a belief that the Gen X, Gen Zs are privileged, you know, and they've come in and because parents want to do better, Nowadays, my parents, God bless them, never had that option. They would survive in every day. And I know that. So I never look at them derogatory. I, I think they did an amazing job. And I, I, I sit there and I say, well, let's just look at this in perspective. There's nothing wrong with wanting your child to do better than you did. There's nothing wrong with you wanting your children to have the best in life. But ultimately, your job as a parent is to teach them and give them the tools to be able to have self-sufficiency in a time of crisis and stress. And the world is in crisis. It's not just, you know, the world is in a state of crisis at the moment. And so we, we have an obligation to sit down with somebody and not always agree and recognize their emotion as a, God bless you. Sometimes it's sit down, take stock of what you're thinking, because in a minute I'm going to come back and I want you to give me, a, give me something that's going to get you out of this and, and, and moving forward. And that's got to come from you. So I do believe that parents, you know, you talk about who is a leader, a leader's born, a leader's made. Well, the first thing is, if you decide to be a parent, by definition, you better lead, mm. you know, not manage, you better lead because you have an obligation to your children to be the best they can be. And I don't mean you force them down a road of 50 different activities, you know, they're very much part of the consulate consultation of what it is, but you support them in their decision-making. You teach them how to make a decision. Critical thinking is not something that just pops out of the air. You've got to learn how to be objective when you're making decisions. And that comes with, you know, practice and experience. You can learn it, but my God, parents got a massive role. So I, I, I do believe, you know, when I sit back and I, I, I look at my time, what did it prepare me for? I think it just prepared me for where I am now you know, without knowing that at the time. And I get sit back and think I could have done a million other things and, and, done, and gone down the route of this and that. I honestly never feel like that. I never feel that I've missed the boat. I just feel I am where I am. And am I happy? Yes. Am I content? Yes. Do I feel I could have done things I missed out on? Yes. Would I have liked to have gone in the Marines? Yes. But what would I have lost off the table with the people I met in the regiment I went into? I'm still in touch with most of them now, still to this day. And they're all 60, 70. They're dropping like flies with COVID at the moment. So I don't, I don't even look at that as a, as a loss. Because a loss is only something that you, you regret. And I don't regret anything. So leadership for me is coming out of an environment like that and having the skills and then saying, how can I use this new me to function in the world out there? So... And, and that's a that's a great point, right? And you talked about high-pressure situations and um, the chaos that is the world, 
sometimes it's in it's more chaotic than others and and but you like let's fast forward a little bit now and go okay so you join the army and and then you obviously go through these life experiences and to the point where you're an expert on how to teach these characters on how to deal with these high pressure situations and the chaos uh how important and like this is probably stepping away from leadership but because I also know that you know you are very much uh, into spirituality and you know the meditation and and you were doing that back then. Mm-hmm. So how does like, how does like because and, and we're talking business now. This is nowhere near the same kind of ballpark. Business, as I said, is it's a lucky space to be in. It's high pressure though, and it and it can be chaos. For for someone listening to this who is running a business you know, what are the insights you can give on how to manage high-pressure situations, chaos? And, you know, I don't know if it does, but does this tie in uh, with some of these things such as meditation and, and you know, the kind of becoming aware and being conscious? Well, I'll give you my take on it. <coughs> Pardon me. That is this. I've been involved in situations where I've had to come away from that situation and sit back and think, what just happened? You know, I've had a lot, I've lost really good friends blown up by bombs in Ireland. I've had things happen where, you know, people have gone on, you know, the first active shooter thing in, in, the, in the UK was Hungerford, where he, the man shot 13 people. That was in our area. We responded. I wasn't on the tactical firearms team then. I was just a local Bobby sent down because they were sending everyone from everywhere to this scene of absolute mayhem. Dead cop in a car who just turned up at the scene, got shot. And, and, and I come away from that, as I did in Warren Point in 79, even though I wasn't at Warren Point, that happened while I was serving in Ireland. 15 people blown up by a bomb. The next afternoon, the same afternoon, Lord Mountbatten blown up by a bomb in Southern Ireland, uh, all linked to terrorism. And we all sat back in the process, and a guy said to me, he said, all right, well, the bar's open, get in the bar. And I sat there, and I thought, that's not the way I'm going to solve this, drinking you know, even though Irish whiskey is lovely, I, it's not the way I was going to solve this. And I wasn't there, so I wasn't physically seeing the bodies in the process. But they were our, our people serving at the same time in the same area. And I, and I remember thinking, I, I need to understand this. I need to understand what I'm feeling. And that's not something you said in the 70s. You know what I mean? Mm. It wasn't something you, you didn't you didn't go down the road of, of and forget the word meditation didn't exist it did but it was never used mindfulness where did that come from you know it's like my God and I thought well I've got to understand why, why I why I'm feeling like this because I felt sick and and over the years in the police I was involved in a lot of riots a lot of situations where I come at the end of it and I thought wow that was that was different and I had to debrief other other troops other police officers, other people. Um, I had to go and debrief a shift one day on a Sunday morning where they all turned up for duty. They went out to a job and the copper went out and got stabbed literally five yards outside the police station, stabbed to death. His shift were traumatised. And I had to do the debrief. It wasn't then, it wasn't at that moment, it was almost a week later. But by that time, their emotions had unpacked and they were angry and they, they, they had all sorts of different... They were fighting amongst each other, blaming this, blaming that. And I knew that for me, I had to find out what made me understand how I was feeling. And I started, remember, there's no internet at that time, in the, in the army time. There was no internet. So in 1982, I come out, so it was just starting to even be spoken about, but we certainly didn't have it. And I started to go to the library, started to read. And it was all about books then, and people. Um, and, and, I, and I started to study the brain and the, the way the brain worked, not knowing why I would do that, what it would, why it would be useful for me in the future. I just started to understand. And I started to understand emotions, that they're impulses and they come through and they, they build up. They're not just one-off things. They, they can build up. So stress and anxiety and depression comes from this build-up of these emotions that you're not managing. And notice I didn't say controlling. You're not, they're not managing. So I, I started to think, well, there might be something in this. So I thought, right, I need to go totally the other way. And I started, then I got linked to Eastern philosophy and I started to look at Eastern philosophy. Then I, like you said, you, you know, I, I went off and did a, a silent retreat before anyone talked about silent retreat because you couldn't talk about it because it was silent. But I went over to the Nepal. There was no luxury hotel. It was, it was a 
a steel stone slab you slept on, you didn't speak, you, you ate rice. And I was there for five days and I was crying out to shout to someone, didn't understand it, didn't know what I was going to get out of it, didn't know anything. And I didn't do journal, that, that wasn't an even a word then either, I didn't even take a book with me. So I sat there and, and, and I just remember day one, day two, climbing the wall thinking, I can't do this, this is just killing me. Day three, started to think, well hang on a minute, why am I here? I'm here because I want to understand how I feel and how I manage myself in situations. So I started to rethink back. I wished I'd have journaled. I wished I'd have written it down. I was rethinking back over this process and saying, right, let's have a look at this. When Richard died and we got told Richard had died, 500 pound bar, blew him to pieces. What was I thinking? Jesus Christ. We went to this situation. What was I thinking? Oh, man. How did I manage that? I didn't. We all went off. The bar opened. This happened. Went out to the town. We all talked about it. Nobody kept in touch. There was no follow-through, no counselling, nothing like that. Nothing was offered. And I started to say, right, there's a gap here. There's a, there's a, there's a disconnect. So I thought, right, I need to understand. What would counselling do? I thought, first thing. What would counselling do? So I became a counsellor. I trained outside of the work. No one knew. Didn't tell anyone. Trained to be a counsellor. Understood the way in which counselling opens and prepares your mind to deal with the situations in a different way, a non-aggressive way. Because everything we were doing was fighting. If we got in there, the moment, and you could see the guys who were pent up, just took a spark and they would fight, fight anybody. If they didn't get a fight outside going out for a drink in Germany, when they, where we were based at that time, They'd come back and wake somebody up to have a fight because that's what was in them. And alcohol just made that so much more prevalent. So for me, it was like, that's not the answer. And I know that's not the answer. I'm not even going there. But I started to live with these guys, you know. Mm -hmm. And I was an NCO then. I was in charge of a lot of them. And I started to look. And this is where I think I got all this from. You talk about spirituality and everything else. There was no term for it then. I mean, nobody would even talk to me about it. If I even mentioned that I was sitting in a corner doing this. And I wasn't sitting in a corner doing this. I can meditate, sat in a settee with a television on and my wife next to me asleep on the chair. You know, I can do that. I have no qualms with that. Because I thought I've got to keep this really well under the radar because this is my thing. And I'm not prepared to share this with anybody because I can't even explain it to anybody yet. Mm. So I went down that road and I did all this sort of thing. I went and did philosophy um, uh, courses. I, I learned NLP. I became a hypnotherapist. Never used it again. I never used it in practice. Just did it so I could self-hypnotize. Now there's courses everywhere. You can download an app. This, 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 in my day, and I'm glad it was my day, I had to really study the subject. And I, and I learned it. And I learned it for that very reason just to manage myself. And I started to put together that you are the choices of the, you are, the, you are your choices and you are also the product of the environment you create. And again, I was looking at these guys and going in on a Monday morning to kick up for parade and they were so drunk. Uh, and I, th I thought, they're great guys. I love them to death. I love them to this day. But I don't want to be here anymore. I need to find another environment. Mm. I can't change this environment. You know, I used to get them up to clean their rooms and do all this sort of thing. Oh, my Jesus. I, I, I just, I thought, no, nah, I need to get it. So I left. I left the army and I joined the police. And ironically, when I joined the, I applied to join the police, I didn't get accepted into the police service of where I was grew, brought up because of where I come from. They wouldn't even accept me. They wouldn't even talk to me. I was already pigeonholed as a as a criminal, if you like. No convictions, exemplary military record, but no convictions. And yet they looked at you as if you were something, you know, didn't get into it. So I had to go outside the country to another, to England, to join a police service there that were actually positively recruiting ex-military. And I got in there, I went in there. Didn't know where it was, didn't know anything about it. Just turned up on the day, got my, did my two days, got accepted and went to training school, you know? So, and this is like, I mean, for me to listen to this and, and I'm sure with anyone else, it's like, this is the perspective thing, right? Like, it's like, you know, I, I grow up in the age that I grew up in and, you know, had it well, great, you know, like um, just grew up and, and everything was given to me in a sense. And, you know, 
that perspective of, and that's that's why I draw from it because it it kind of it, it makes me remain humble. It makes me kind of keep the back against the wall and understand that you know I'm in one of the best positions in the world right now. I'm healthy. I'm in Australia. I have people that care about me. I have people that will go to war for me. You know, like literally that will support me through anything. And I I need to draw on that. And I think that the perspective that you can get from having conversations like this, why I love podcasting, but being, and and I want to ask you this, but, you know, because for me being a leader, you know, I always try to think about the values that I want to live by, the values that I want to represent. And that helps me consciously become aware of when I'm not so much trying to be those values, but more about when I'm stepping outside of those values what are the for you what are the values of a leader and and obviously now we can fast forward to when you were in these leadership roles and you did have to manage characters because we're talking about you know if you're wanting to scale a business in a sense right you are going to have to manage characters and you're going to have to manage egos and that's pretty much what your role ends up becoming what what are the values that you know a good leader should have well, the first one I would suggest is know your values, you know, straight away is what do you stand for? Who are you? That was 30 years of work, mate. I'll tell you that now. That was my values changed as I went through the process. Some were geared towards what other people's values were. And I accepted them because, oh, yeah, that to be, that's, I, I agree with that. I, I, I want to be that. Not really. Not when I really break it down. I took a lot of people's values as I was growing up to fit into different environments. I learned that. Once I learned it, I never did it again. So the first thing I would say to everybody is know your true values. What, what do you stand for? You know, what, what really drives you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What, what motivates and inspires you? And get that list. And you'll shortcut that list down to some two or three very important things. Because if your value is, for example, like yours is fitness, you live your life living into your value of health. You, if you went out and had a really bad meal and you know it was bad and you got absolutely blasted and you know you felt the next, the next day you feel bad. Mm. You're out of your values. So you will put your values back in track by the next day, either eating healthy, drinking lots of water, going to the gym. That's a value. And it's a value that you live by, you know, constantly. Now, you could also have a value of fidelity. The most important thing you do is be faithful to your partner. Well, if, you're, if you haven't got that value, if that's not a value that's high up on your list, as soon as temptation comes, you go. Mm. Because it's not within your value structure. So your values has to have a balanced production. So it's not just about how you live, but it's also if you run a business or you're in business, it has to be the values of which you want your business to be recognized by. And I think it's really important. Know your values. Take time on that case. Because values as a series of subheadings for me. Courage, for example. You can't be a leader and run a business without the courage to make decisions which aren't always going to be popular with everyone in your business. So courage, where do you get that courage from? Some people will never step over that, put their head over the parapet because they don't have that courage. And what comes with courage is determination, is to know that if you've got a view of the world and you seek advice from people around you, that the advice that comes back to you could actually be better than the, than the opinion you've got at the moment. So therefore, it's about the courage of putting your ego away and saying, I like that. Let's work with that. And let's nurture that. Mm. I'm not, it's not finished, but let's nurture it. And so, that, so courage, determination, because if you fall down at the very first hurdle, you haven't got anything. Your values have fallen off the, fallen off the, off the, the wagon straight away. And then I would suggest integrity. These are my, these are, this is what I put down there. They, they, they belong to every single leadership teacher in the world, I'm sure. These will come into some sort of heading. Tony Robbins, whoever you look at for, you know, these sort of things. They're, they're written. So they're in the thing. But how do I apply them to me? Integrity is something. Well, I am non-negotiable on integrity. I'm telling you that. I don't care what anyone says. It's, it's, not, about, it's not about whether you, you, you sort of do something with the intention of you know, protecting someone else and all this sort of stuff. I mean, generally, your core is that you have integrity. That, that's, that's a big one because that's something that I 
like it's one of my values like integrity is important to me like it's 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 so important and maybe because i've spent a bit of time with you but i want you to unpack what integrity is because i feel like it's it's lost i feel like the the social media the beast that it is and the dynamic of the world currently that integrity is one of those things that is lost it's not something that people are aware of it's not and it's misunderstood what it actually is What's yeah. integrity? Well, it's the, it's e- the easy answer is to say it's different things to different people. But the answer for me is that it is the core in which you set your levels by. And it's what I mean by that is I sat down and unpicked this oh, 20 years ago. And so I want to be someone who people say, you know, I can trust him. We're not using the word integrity. We're just saying it's trust. So people say, I, I, I trust Kevin. If Kevin says something, I would generally believe what he says. Now, have I always got it right? No. Have I always told the truth? No. Have I always got 100% of everything right and positive? No. Have I messed up? Yes. I'm human. I'm flawed. What integrity is, is knowing when you've gone off that area and bring yourself back onto it quickly and put it right. You go in to someone, and I've done it. You know, I've advised and I've done something and, and, and there's been an incident that hasn't gone particularly right or brilliant. And I've come after it. I said, I let you down today, boss. I wasn't. I missed that. Integrity is that that man will know that if he uses me again, I will, I'm there, you know. And I understand my shortfalls. And I understand my, 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 my strengths. And my strengths are in always because I'm an advisor that I have to be right. And, and more importantly, you know, integrity is being honest in that situation and if you don't get used again accepting the res- that you were responsible for that situation absolutely that's the biggest thing and and you know i I've, I've not got many examples where i could sit there but what i have got is where i went back to the person one-on-one and said what what, what went wrong you know what what, what what could i do differently if we're working together again and he just said nothing can't, you can't do anything different. Your reputation tells me that you are good at what you do. We may not be a good fit. You see what I'm saying? Mm. And I said, yeah. Because again, on top of all this is this personality thing between people. Some people look at someone who's there to assist as a, a bit of a threat. Now, he didn't, to be fair to this guy. He didn't. He, he, he was spot on. You know, I learned so much from that. But it, that's what some people do. Some people think that you bring somebody in and they're really good and suddenly they become the person that everyone goes to, not the person maybe that used to be the person everyone goes to. And, and, and you have to sit back and think, well, why is this happening? And it might well be this person is doing everything right and has actually got that knowledge for where you are at that stage of that business. So how can you integrate that then into the business that benefit in and being a leader to the point that you're inspiring and you're developing that person to be more, you know, corporate orientated, group orientated, rather than just the individual that's getting the ego from everyone going to them. And and it's it's difficult, you know. So integrity for me is is both in 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 the putting out and the getting back. But also in, in this world, mate, social media, the word integrity is written on every single corporate slogan, every single um, policy, strategy. We are people of integrity, really. How do I know that? Where's, you only know it when you go to them. So they've got your business and then you let down and you say, well, you lied to me. It wasn't integrity. There was nothing there. But you've already paid your investment. They're already moving on to the next client and you're gone. You know, you have not gained from that, that experience what you should have gained from it. So I think integrity is, if it's mentioned on the slogan, you challenge it. You say, what does that mean? What is the interpretation of it? You know, that's what we are. We are people of integrity. So what will you do for me then if this doesn't go right? What will you bring to the table if I need to come to you with concerns? This is what we'll do. Everyone has a customer satisfaction department, you know, customer service department, every big organization. But often it's the most frustrating place to go in the world because they are just hammered day in, day out by all the constant complaints. What investment is that company putting into them to get them to, it's such an important part of the business. 
but they're always seen as, oh, you can work in customer service. We're looking for customer service reps. You go in there and you're on basic wage or a little bit more. But that's basically what it is. You're taking the heat of everybody. You're going home depressed. You've got anxiety. You're scared of the phone ringing and answering it for what's going to come down the end of the phone. So I, I think there's, if it's integrity, it has to go all the way down the line. You know, every part of the business has to be in line with that. They have to be true to that. So our customer service, where we're taking the complaints where people aren't satisfied with what we're producing, to me, is really important. What we, can we invest and how can we invest in that department to give them that break, that development, that skill to be able to manage the situation better? And how do we follow through? And so that's a military thing. That's, that's really big. It's called, you know, structural debriefing, and it's, we do it all the time. And yet, the next day, we come back and we tell them what's come out of the brief. Right, there was no, there wasn't kit there when we wanted it. That wasn't there. That now, this is what we put in place to ensure that will never happen again. Yeah, right, thanks. You know? So if somebody puts something in which is of a concern, there has to be a comeback to that person to say, we've got, we've, we've heard what you're saying, and this is what we're going to do to do it. Or... At this moment in time, there's nothing we can. There's nothing we can do. But we note your we note your concern, and we'll put it in for you know future review at the next SLT, Senior Leaders Forum, whatever. So I'm just saying is that leadership, integrity, and trust comes all the way down the organisation. To have it on the slogan is not enough. It's got to be bred through. It's like safety and security in in companies where I work with. If you say you're safety and secure, how come all your staff are getting assaulted? What are you doing about it? Where is it in your, where's your culture, culture of integrity? Where is your culture of safety? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it just rings true, right? Like I think at the end of the day, and, and you know, we can talk in business, but integrity is doing what you say you do or what you said you were going to do. And I think, and, and also being honest when you're not doing it. Like I think that's probably as a leader, one of the biggest things, one of the hardest things to do is actually admit when you stepped out of line, admit when you didn't, you weren't there for the person you were meant to be there for, or, you know, when you were doing the wrong thing and more so in that position, because as you said, everybody does make mistakes. Like that's the, that's the nature of the game. Like if you're not making mistakes, you're probably just not aware of them. You mm. know what I mean? And mm. I think like that awareness of, and and just the ability to, have the courage, you know, you've talked about these values, have the courage to actually have integrity, you know, because having integrity takes courage. I need to be honest with myself in that moment about when I am stepping out of line, when I haven't done what I said I was going to do, when I'm not there for the person. Um, and then to take ownership of that and responsibility so that you can actually better yourself for the future because that's the only way to do it the only way you can better yourself in the future is to take absolute ownership of everything every circumstance everything that's going on in your life in your business every and and that's you know like there's been times for me like i, I remember like when i did my silent retreat you know and i still there's lessons i learned there that i still today am not good at you know, of course. And I'm, I'm, I still today sit down not at some nights and go, you've been given this lesson. You had this, this kind of moment uh, in time where you were brought awareness around something that I had no awareness of before mm -hmm. I went. And I still am today not great at it, right? But I'm aware of it and I pull myself up and, and I, I make attempts continuously to make sure that I'm, I'm progressing in that area of my life. And... I think integrity for me is more about going, when I'm aware of that, am I trying to deflect the situation because I'm scared that I'm going to lose status? Or am, am I actually taking ownership and am I willing to take the consequence of losing status because at the end of the day, that, keep, that, that still leaves me with my integrity, but it also leaves me with the ability to learn moving forward. Well, I think, I think you've answered that question yourself there because the moment you start talking about losing status, we're going back over to the ego. We're going back to what does my status mean to me? And is it, am I egocentric? Does it mean that everything I'm doing is about what I get out of this? Mm. Now, when you set up a business, of course, you have to have this proof that you're going to have a better quality of life at the end of it than you are, you know, before you started it. But ultimately, it takes on a, a, a life of its own there suddenly becomes, you, you become like a head of the family. And if you are running that business from the perspective of 
true integrity and to, with true values, you are saying, I care about these people and I'm, I'm going to do everything because if they don't get paid, they don't get it. They can't pay their bills, their rent, their mortgage. So I have that responsibility. So my status, I can understand why people think if I'm not working, I'm not able to help these people. Ultimately, when you surrender the ego and you start to look at it from the perspective of that my status is merely the name that I give that, that is given to me as the head of this department or this company, and everyone around here are working collectively with me to achieve the greater the greater goal, then I am going to be successful. And these people will be successful as well. And these people will have three things that will come out of it that maybe some CEOs don't get. They'll like me, but not just to be liked is important, but they will like me generally. They will feel I have benefited them in some form of their life. They will trust me and they will support me. And not just in business, but they will support me. There will be a point of contact for me through the rest of my life. And, and I think that's something there where status is, is something there. And this is why I'm low, low key, low profile and everything. It's not about I want to be. It's, it's where can I do my best work? Well, somebody's often said to me, so many people, yeah, you, you should be doing this. And I'm thinking, yeah, I get that. But I, I am best suited where I feel really comfortable based on the era of the world I come from. And going back to spirituality, bring that on like you're saying with status. The reason meditation was so important to me was because if I didn't do something in that point when I was in that retreat, I don't know what I would, how I would have survived the five days. And they were running these courses. They're not courses. They were running these classes where you just gone and just join in with these monks. And, I, and I, I started sitting there thinking, well, I'm bloody praying. You know, it's just like, I'm just praying. But what I started to, to get from that was I started to concentrate and learn how to breathe. That was the key for me. And then once I started learning how to breathe, I learned how, how I felt after I did this certain type of breathing exercise with diagrammatic deep breathing. And, and I thought, you know, that just brought me right down. And I just, my boredom's gone. I've got clarity. I had nothing to do. I couldn't write anything. I, I would, that's what I'm saying. I tragic that I didn't take take a pen and paper but I sat through that and I learned that and then I thought well how can I implement that into my life and, and and this is the issue mate this is the thing I've said all along I haven't got a toolkit of things where I said meditate young man go off and do you know we've talked about it I'm very conscious of people who I talk to about it because I don't I don't want that to be the sole purpose of our conversation but if I feel the person has got something in them where they are, you can see it, you know, there's something missing in your life, mate. And what you need to do is just find clarity. Your brain is going a million miles an hour. You need to find clarity. There is nothing better. Science has now proved it, you know. Mm. There are now neuroscientific uh, research and evaluation papers which says meditation does good, better than drugs. And so, therefore, I am saying, you know, I, I take that from him and put that in. Uh, and I, I meant to say that in the last bit when you were talking about it, but that's that's the point for me. But going back to status, I I think that once you release and surrender that, the feeling of being the main person, because you develop this team to an extent that they can all feel comfortable coming to you with their, not so much concerns, but their ideas, you know? And we're talking about leadership, but you've also got entrepreneurial areas where everyone wants to be an entrepreneur now. And an entrepreneur, of course, and, and leader are two entirely different skill sets. You know, the entrepreneur nurtures the ideas and the, and the processes, whereas the leader nurtures the people. Mm. And so I think they are two entirely different skill sets. And you can get tied up with the board and doing the board, because we used to get guys like that. They come on and put everything on the board, then walk out the room. And people like me were left to turn that into a plan, you know. But that was what we did. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a very difficult one. I, I think I feel very strongly about it. But um, status is one of those things for me. It's like it, it, it honestly is one of those dichotomies that's extremely hard, especially in business today, you know, like we're, we're filming to put on social media to help build our business. But there's a, there's a point where it's like, you know, am I letting this chase for status take away from my building of character? And, and, and that's the honestly one of the toughest dichotomies in the modern age of building a business is, you know, there's a part of me that has to play the game of building a business because digital is is everything now. 
But then there's also a part of me that says, well, there's, and, and I think this is one of the most important things for me is there's, there's lines I'm not willing to cross. Do you know what I mean? Like the reason I love podcasting is because it allows me to be me and it's, it's so natural. Me and you are in flow state now. We're just talking to each other. I don't have to be anything else other than myself. You know, you said to me the dress code, right? I made a decision at, like a year ago that I don't give a fuck, right, what anyone thinks about me and I'm not going to dress to impress anyone because you know what? I, I did that for a long time and that drove me into states of anxiety right? And I tried to impress everyone around me. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to be the guy who wears what he wants to wear and I'm me and people are either going to love me for it or they're not. And, you know, I want to be the guy in the room who you look at and you undermine because I'm wearing what I'm wearing. And then my character, who I am, my skill set is the thing that wows you and makes you respect me. And I think, in the modern, I think in the modern day, the thing that uh, the the problem that social media causes is the fact that if people think they have to be something outside of themselves to be successful, and they have to cross these lines, and then that's why they 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 do cross those lines, and then like you said, they step outside of these values, and then that's why it becomes unsustainable. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really good point, and that's a very very valid point as well, because you know, images. Image has always been part of success. It's been built into it, isn't it? It's sort of almost, you, you, you think about an entrepreneur and you get a certain image. That's changing now. Elon Musk, all these sort of new guys, they're, they're, they're out of the box. He just, he just, Elon just, did you see? He, just, he yeah. changed his name yeah. in, in, um, in Tesla yeah. from CEO to Techno King. Like his official, yeah. his official role as, in Tesla is Techno King. But what did he do to the CFO, King of Coins? <laughs> You know what I mean? And or master of coins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the point I'm making is, is what he's doing is he's changing the rules. And and, and I find that fascinating because it was, it was never for me about the image. May I have worked with people who are absolutely immaculate in all sense of their work, the way they document, the way they process everything else. But crisis hits and they're jelly in the wall, they're jelly on the chair. Now, it's not a disrespectful thing about them. It's just that that's what happens to people who haven't prepared themselves to deal with that sort of level of process. Concentrate on characters because character gets you through. And at the end of the day, everything you're doing has got to be for being able to sail through the rocky storms that's about to come your way. And there will be rocky storms, you know. And ultimately, we are all flawed characters. So if they're going to look at you and criticize you for anything, they may criticize you for the fact you're in shorts and a T-shirt, but they won't criticize you, and I agree with this. They won't criticize you when they listen to your conversation about who you are. And that's where I go back to values and all the other things in there. Find out who you are, what your values are and stay with them. And when you wander off, and we will, it could be one night you know, in drink, it could be whatever, bring it back to line. Put right what damage has been done over that and move on. And that's really important. No one's perfect. We are all basically flawed human beings who are all trying to develop ourselves to the best we can and acknowledge that, you know, embrace that, accept it, and then say, right, I've been flawed. I know what that looks like. I don't want to be it again. I'll slip off a few times, but I, I know where I am and I know who I am. And I find that is the biggest criteria for me is to look at yourself and say, don't get tied up. You have to have enough self-respect to be able to stand in a mirror and, and whether you don't, I'm, I'm 61 years of age now, mate. I don't like what I see in the mirror anymore, you know. And I, I'm the first to sit there and go, mm, you know. But I've even now, I even laugh now. I go back and say, well, I'm me, you know. Whoa, looking good. You know? <laughs> and I wander off, you know. And, and, and I'm, because I will not accept, I will not accept that I'm going to start there. And if I put myself down, everyone will put you down. So you just have to have your own personal set of standards which you sit to, and even if it's not great, there are things you could do to improve and develop. And you know, I got lots of injuries, and I I sit there and I think, you know, I I, I go to the gym every day, every day, and oh, all I want to do is pump weights. And they're saying, yeah, you're fat pig, you you should be running. I'm, oh, I don't want to run. I just want to pump weights, and <laughs> that's all I want to do. But I'm not a weightlifter or a bodybuilder or anything like that. I just enjoy going into a gym and the environment of a gym because I've always been in one, you know. Yeah. One day I will get somebody while well, I get in there and say, you know what, mate, I think I can help you. <laughs> but at the moment we go into the gym and I just do what I do. But I try to keep as active as I can. And I, and I, I have no qualms with that. You know, it's, it's, it's about self, self-awareness and self, 
self-awareness is a big thing, and, and, and self-reflection, and more importantly, self-confidence. Oh, we're going to wrap it up. I want to say a big thank you for coming on the on the podcast. Um, I appreciate you. The people that are listening are going to appreciate this conversation. Um, I don't know if you want me to plug anything to where to find you. You probably don't. Um, so usually I would say that, but um, yeah. we're going to wrap it up there, guys. Um, I, I really hope you enjoyed the episode. I know I, I fucking love having this conversation. I'm pretty lucky I get to have these conversations quite regularly, um, but – We will see you next week, guys. And again, Kevin, thank you for your time. Thank you. I just want to say a big thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the show. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Uh, feel free to share us, share the episode with your friends and family and Feel free to leave us a review as well. Uh, you know, we all the support that we get for the for the show, and especially now that we've revamped it, uh, we're trying to bring something that's got a little bit more value. It's definitely appreciated. And if you have a question uh, for strategy sessions next week, you want us to take a bit of a deep dive and help you work through some of the roadblocks in your business, or you just want some help creating some winning strategy, you can shoot me an email at Kyle at EliteVitalityCoaching.com. But I'll leave it there. Until next week, stay safe, stay stay safe, stay healthy, uh, and I'll see you on the other side.